to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm actually in the studio today with... Nate Phillips. So two Nates in the studio today. It's going to be a great show. We're actually going to be interviewing Jason Jimenez, who wrote The Raging War of Ideas, among other books. And we're going to be talking about some very critical things today. As we begin this show, I'd like to ask you to start with the tolerance that is always preached in so many different areas. It's easy to preach tolerance, 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 but when we hear ideas that are different than our own, it's often easy to become intolerant real quickly. Today we're going to be talking about some of the major things going on in our country and how we can take some of the down spiral that we're seeing all around us and bring it back to normalcy. It'll be an incredible show, and I'm so glad that you're tuned in. Well, Jason Jimenez is the president of Reshift Ministries, which has been endorsed by Norman Geisler, Ravi Zacharias, and others, Josh McDowell. And I recently picked up his book, The Raging War of Ideas, How to Take Back Our Faith, Family, and Country. I'm excited to have Jimenez on the show this morning. Welcome to The God Solution, Jason Jimenez. Well, I'm glad to be here both, Nate. Uh, I'm looking forward to this interview. Great. It's so great to have you on the show today. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I've uh, been a pastor for several years, uh, about 15, 16 years, working uh, with parents and young people. It's been a passion of mine. Originally started ministry. I was born in Tucson, Arizona, so started ministry there uh, through Calvary Chapels. And uh, years ago, my wife and I felt the call to move East Coast. I know it kind of sounds strange coming from Arizona, but we had come out to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, years ago and just really knew that we needed to take uh, a stronger stance, a stronger position within the churches um, and equip the next generation. So we, we felt the call to come East Coast and uh, uh, continue to work in, in church development with families and attended Southern Evangelical Seminary and been personally mentored and trained by Dr. Norman Geisler. And so through the years, just adapting uh, theology and apologetics, you know, the defense of the faith, and adapting it for families, you know, helping parents grow stronger in their worldview. And then, of course, uh, I have a huge passion uh, working with young people, and so coming alongside them and discipling them with a biblical worldview. So uh, two years ago, we left the local church after about 15 years working with children, students, and college students, and parents and developed Reshift Ministries, which is a nonprofit ministry. And our primary task is to advance Christians to live out a biblical worldview at home and also in the world. And so we focus on three primary things to do that. One is equipping Christians to defend the faith. Uh, we look to restore families, marriage first, and then, of course, parenting. And then thirdly, we believe that if people know their faith, they defend the faith, uh, and they have a stronger family, that we can save our country. And so we also uh, adapt culturally apologetic techniques to help Christians be able to live in a culture that is becoming more post-Christian than ever before. That's wonderful. I'm one of those kids that you're talking about that it would have been so good if my parents had some of the training that you're offering. My parents had a little. I grew up a missionary kid, had a lot of doubt, and my dad would always give me Josh McDowell books and things like that, and they helped tremendously. But I'm so thankful for people like you that are meeting those needs for families that do have kids that need this kind of evidence in the middle of a society that is kind of entering this post-Christian era that you describe. So what made you write the book? 
Well, exactly. I think, Nate, with what you just said, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I, I see that. I, I've seen through the years uh, there's just a major disconnect. And so as a pastor, working in a church is unique because you know, a lot of times you focus on things you need to get done, the needs of the people, uh, you know, obviously the programs, maintaining the programs and things like that. But as I started to have a lot of discussions with a lot of families through the years, I was noticing um, that we are not, we are pretty much, I would say, clueless um, to what's happening around the world. And uh, so my take with writing this book originally uh, a few years ago was how can I bring something to light in a way Again, my audience being biblically illiterate, and what I mean biblically illiterate is people who they profess to be Christian, but when you start pressing them on that matter, respectfully, obviously, you find that they don't really know uh, what it, it means to be a Christian and, and, and lack the understanding of comprehending the truth behind Christianity, the doctrine, if you will. And then, of course, if they don't know that, they're certainly not out there defending the faith against the attacks, the onslaught that we see. And so I, I felt pressed that, you know what, faith, family, country, I believe progressively is the key here and systematically as well. And so I wanted to write a cultural apologetic book that was simple for uh, the average person to read and to understand and also take action. Um, you know, there's so much out there, so much on the news. Uh, there's so much discouragement that we face in life today. Um, and, of course, in your churches, a lot of times we don't focus on the outside world or so inwardly. And so the Raging War of Ideas was an attempt to, you know, with a grassroots uh, movement to get cultural apologetics into the hearts and minds of Christians. And so that, that was the attempt. And so the great thing is with the book, we also offer a study guide so that, that people individually or in small groups and churches or communities, um, they can invest in this book and, and do a 12-week study. That's really cool, Jason. Um, I have a question about the the title of your book, "The Raging War of Ideas." Uh, where did that come from? What's the What's the meaning of that title? Well, that's a good question. I appreciate you asking that. The, the bottom line: the raging war of ideas is really two center things. We obviously, as Christians, we believe that there is a spiritual warfare. In cultural terms, you know, it boils down to this: there's a Judeo-Christian ethic, right? There's a belief system that God exists and that we have these natural rights, we possess these natural rights that God has given us, and so we are under um, the guidance and control of him through objective morality. Uh, and, of course, then we believe that that's centered through also the teachings of Jesus Christ that, you know, obviously are recorded in Scripture. Uh, on, the, uh, on the flip side of that, you have what we would call cultural relativism, and that is, again, a denial of the existence of God and absolute truth and, and objective morality. And, of course, does not hold claim that the Bible is the inspiring Word of God. And so it's not just a tension. This is, an, this is a, again, as the title says, is a raging war between these two ideals. And we clearly have seen that in history. And right now in the state of our country that has that once a Christian heritage, we are seeing the attack to remove any evidence for a belief in God and also a belief in Jesus Christ. So... There is a major warfare that is going on, and so the title was to really address those two conflicting worldviews. You're absolutely right about that cultural relativism and kind of the stranglehold that it has on our society. It seems like the atheist, the skeptic, the naturalist has a baseline expectation of being 
um, innocent until proven guilty, whereas the Christian has this uh, opposite perspective of being guilty and proven innocent. It's crazy, I think, how we've gotten there. Could you mention um, what's going on? What is cultural relativism and how expansive is it in America? Well, I I think... For the viewers to understand, the listeners, I should say, is, is that cultural relativism, again, obviously, is a denial of absolute truth, right? So you make your own truth, and, and culture uh, is, you know, one of those focal points that we look in within community or societal norms. So we, the people, we decide, if you will, we determine the truth that we want to live by. Well, now, when you classify in terms of religious point of view, a viewpoint that comes from a spiritual belief, that's good for you, right? That applies for you, but it not, may not necessarily apply to all people. And so the, the, the irony in all this is that, obviously, culturally speaking, that America was built on the opposite of that, right? Uh, we believed in absolute truth. And so this movement of cultural relativism today is running rampant in, in media, obviously within movies, uh, every sort of book that you get in academia, and that's what it says. It just says that, you know, Christianity obviously is not the answer. Now, the other thing I should point out, too, is with cultural relativism, though, a form of religious pluralism, in a sense, springs from that, because if truth is not absolute and it's relative to the individual, then you have these different cultures or these different norms, with, if you will, within different uh, societies or in periods of time through history, different civilizations that embraced what they believe to be a productive and informative and healthy uh, religious system, belief system for them. and But that changes through time because, again, truth changes. And so uh, re- religious pluralism kind of springs from that to where they want to say blanketly, hey, look, all religions are true, but they're true within those societal norms, within those people. And But, of course, we know that there are major problems with that, and particularly how they tend to always attack Christianity and say Christianity is inclusive, and uh, they're narrow-minded, and then, of course, they have to get labeled as bigots. So cultural relativism is huge in our, in our society today, but I'd like to, I, you know, the truth is, Nate, is that we've gotten to this point because I believe in many cases Christians have removed themselves from these issues and have compromised the truth, which is Jesus Christ. And because we've done that, we've allowed the enemy um, to take advantage of that and really kind of push his agenda, which we're seeing today. You know, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's an extremely exclusive claim. And I always tell people when I'm debating this on campus and in different forms that all truth is exclusive. You know, my undergraduate degree was in chemistry, and there wasn't a chemistry professor I had or a math professor or a physics professor or Nate here with me this morning is an engineer. I'm sure he didn't have any engineering professors that weren't exclusive about what was right and what was wrong. It's funny how we can look at the world around us and always see things with that kind of exclusivity, but then look at things of spiritual significance and assume the opposite, but it is what's happening all around us. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. On that note, can you describe how schools, the cultural media, politics... How are those wrongfully shaping our current generation to embrace cultural relativism? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, think about, think of the worldview of naturalism. We kind of stated that a little bit earlier, but that the the Department of Education, for example, that controls our education system, including now also the universities, right, um, they all uh, 
espouse naturalism, and so that is a denial in God's existence, that we didn't come, um, we weren't created by God, and that we were not made in His image, but obviously we came through natural processes that randomly came about. Um, so that's how the schools and, and a lot of the culture media who graduate from, the, from that type of indoctrination, and of course then get themselves into poli- politics, that's how through the naturalistic lens, they are able to drive home their agenda because it's not about God, it's about man. And so one of the major, a lot of times people beat up on media, and that's certainly the case. I mean, we, we got a lot of issues there that we see uh, a worldview of naturalistic understanding that is being espoused uh, in all forms of media. But you got to look at the schools. I mean, you think of the thousands of hours in someone's life that they, you know, 1,400 hours on average for a person who's, who attends a public school who is being indoctrinated with a naturalistic understanding. And so we shouldn't be surprised when if you have a child in public schools or if you have a, a child in a university that this is certainly what they're going to be taught because that's their worldview. They have an institution that is built on naturalism. And so... If they're able to propagate that message through the different avenues of, of literature and media, they're going to do that. And, of course, down politics. And so a lot of the legislation even now that we see being forced into our homes, into our lives, is, is through a naturalistic lens. So that's how they've been able to be very effective and, and wrongfully shape this, this new generation now that, that is more godless than than ever in American history before. And that's been the humanist agenda as far back as as we know to control education and so many other parts of society. So when I began the show, I began with a plea for tolerance because so many people in this audience and probably in any audience in today's age of uh, pluralism have a hard time with the exclusive claims of Christ Now, they preach tolerance, but oftentimes don't show that to Christians at all. So how has this new form of tolerance, this pretend tolerance, obstructed Christianity? Well, what it's done is, you know, tolerance has become the new virtue, right? So we as Christians would say love is the greatest of all virtues, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But a relativist or an anti-God type person, um, atheist person, whatever you want to label the person, um, a tolerance position, you know, again, in, a, in back in the day, you know, uh, 50 plus years ago, it was, you know, known to be putting up with something. You didn't necessarily like it, but you would tolerate it, right? You love the person, uh, you may not do that, but it was respect between the two that there was a disagreement, but you nonetheless would tolerate it. Well, that's been replaced with a more diverse form diversified form, um, again, that espouses that all of these are equally valid. So that becomes the new virtue. Now, what that does is it says that you need to tolerate everything and all things, and if you don't, um, then you're discriminating. And that's where we apply, or today, with the tolerance movement, they apply the civil rights, or in the case with LGBT and others, equality. And so if you say that you disapprove of their lifestyle, you're not you're not being tolerant, and if you're not being tolerant, that is viewed, uh, in some cases, a criminal offense. And that you can see the danger that this is now having in this intellectual de-evolution, 
that is really destroying uh, a lot of the systems that our founders and others have put in place based on the Judeo-Christian ethic. And so overall, this tolerance movement, again, is a byproduct of cultural relativism. And so it's a new ideology that is steadily replacing absolute truth. And again, if you can remove God, then you can redefine truth. And if you can redefine truth, then you'll replace Christianity. And so this new tolerance movement, the primary goal in many cases is to replace Christianity with relativism. We had a Christian student that actually came to Christ in our ministry that was an RA in one of the dorms. And he was released from that position. He believed because he was outspoken about his faith. And he described tolerance in the modern era as accepting people that that act like you and talk like you, um, but not those that think any differently. And I think it was really true. And, and he kind of lost his job because he was willing to take a stand for Christ. And that's an unfortunate reality today. Yeah, and that's something yeah. that you, you can even see in the workplace as well. Or if you take too strong of a stand that's outside the defined um, zones of tolerance, then you can potentially get in trouble with uh, with even your career. So you're making the argument that um, the founding fathers built America on Judeo-Christian ethics. Uh, could you give some examples of that that uh, that support that uh, position? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's very clear. I mean, obviously, there again with this whole thing that we're talking about, there is a movement um, to replace um, historical um, data that we have from our founders from early parts of American history and really to, to replace it with a, with a different uh, understanding of, of American history. Um, but if you do look back, again, and I'm not making, just so your, your listeners know, we're not making the case that Christian was or, or America was a Christian nation, right? But I do believe and do hold uh, that there is definitely a strong Christian heritage uh, of this nation. I mean, if you look at, for example, the purpose of why people were coming to America, they were wanting to come, um, as you look at the Mayflower Compact, is they wanted to propagate the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, clearly, obviously, many of them were given um, approval to um, come over you know, to America to build colonies, and, and were taxed, and of course, the British Empire at the time were overseeing a lot of these journeys and pilgrimages, and had control over them. We know that until American Revolution, etc. But even from the beginning, many of them were fleeing. A lot of the Puritans were coming to America to live out their Christian faith because they're being oppressed, obviously under state-ruled government, whether it be under King Henry VIII or it was Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth. Um, but through the Mayflower Compact and, and others of our founding fathers, with Alexander Hamilton, George Washington, John Adams, uh, all the way, you know, you look through with uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, over and over and over, you see writings, you see them um, uh, re referencing God, referencing the Bible. You see John Adams over and over again, his complimenting of the Constitution, along with Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, who, again, was the architect of the Declaration of Independence. They put these things in place, uh, being guided by um, William Blackstone, um, by the Bible, um, by the Ten Commandments, uh, to build a constitution, to write a constitution, and to ratify it, to put it in place for a religion of, or to a religious and moral people. 
so they wanted to live virtual lives, and so they all identified knowing that they had these inalienable rights that were God-given by their Creator to live out a free and prosperous life. And so you go from there to every other aspect of the life, into work, into uh, churches being built around communities, communities are being built around churches, education systems uh, were developed by Christian-based people to teach the Bible, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. So those are just some kind of general um, things of, of, of for people to look at and to see the, the founding and the establishment of our nation was was built on a Judeo-Christian ethic. And predominantly, our early founders and many of the early legislators as states started to become part of the United States uh, were all Christian. So those are just some, some general examples of, of uh, the history of America being built on a, on a Christian heritage. And I know I've heard so many of those examples. It's crazy how they're being purged from our society and our history classes today. It's revisionist history, to say the least. So does it make any difference whether or not America had a Christian heritage? That's the important question here. Yeah, it does, because if you look at the place that America's played in history, it's because it was built on uh, a Judeo-Christian ethic. That's key. America has been able to do what it's done because of the belief system it has in God. It reveres God. It has reverence for the scriptures, the founders, and again, the history that we have. People are fleeing persecution. They're fleeing, they're fleeing tyrannical rule um, so they can live, live their freedoms out. And the first freedoms that we would say, according to the First Amendment of the Constitution, uh, is our religious freedoms, because if you can freely worship the God that you believe in, uh, that's going to impact every aspect of your life, but if you restrict and oppress people that they can't worship uh, a, a God or a form of religion, that will oppress them in every aspect of their lives. So yes, it does matter, because if you remove God and Jesus and the influence the Bible has played in American history, uh, then you can say that there was nothing significant or special. God's hand was not on the nation. The advancement of education, hospitals, missionaries is all farce, right? It'd be interpreted through a secular lens, which is no greater than fascism or communism. Obviously, we'd have to make that case before we jump to that conclusion, but my point in making that is that if you remove what made this nation so great and to accomplish what it's done through the less than 300 years, you completely miss um, the, not just the history, not just the literature, but the impact and influence that we have played uh, as Christians in the rest of the world. Hmm. Jason, we've had in our history um, a number of, of horrible things happen in this country and, and people doing evil things. Um, what, what are some indicators that you see are confirming that America is entering a postmodern uh, or post-Christian era now um, versus some of those pastimes when uh, you had god, uh, godlessness running rampant as well? Well, yeah, it clearly, uh, Nate, I would say is a disbelief in God. If you look back in history, in any any empire, uh, let's say let's take for example uh, in Rome when they became more polytheistic because they were embracing other cultures uh, as they would defeat and they would, you know, incorporate them in, into their empire, 
And of course, they let several people, several groups, and different types of people to worship, um, and you know, in different ways and, and different deities. And so they became very pluralistic in their understanding. So we call them polytheistic. Um, you saw eventually a major decline. Uh, of course, then the times when they started to declare Jesus to be um, God, we saw Christians come on scene after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the start of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. Um, they wanted to persecute that, and in that, because it was interfering with their polytheistic uh, belief, or in this, in many cases, with certain emperors, they themselves were God, and if you didn't worship them, you'd be killed. And so, what you always see is a beginning of a disbelief in God, or I would actually say, before I actually say a disbelief, is a rejection of God. And when you start rejecting God, again, who is the final judge, who is the creator, that we are made in his image, that his laws um, are everlasting, and he gives us guidance, and he gives us instruction, and that there are consequences um, to either following or not following, to either obeying or not obeying his law, uh, you are going to have uh, uh, you know, a certain choice to be made. And we are seeing now in our nation, once a believer once a follower and an obeyer of his truth are now not only disbelieving but have rejected uh, God and his laws and making our own laws, we become the arbiter. So entering now into the stage of our life, Romans chapter 1, for example, is a prime example of when God gives people over to their lusts, that it becomes even more unstable. And then it says, and it progresses even from there, Paul in Romans 1, that they now have all manners of unrighteousness. It gets so out of control, and of course in Isaiah and Jeremiah, with the day and age that they were, as they were rebuking their people, Jeremiah in this case with Judah, Judah was saying that you know, good becomes evil and evil becomes good. And so when you, when you start seeing that there's so much instability that no one even knows the truth any longer and everybody gets away with whatever they want and there's just no proper righteous law that's enforced and proper justice, that's when all chaos breaks loose. And so I would summarize it in three A's, three A words. The first one is you become uh, apathetic to God. And we saw that, of course, with, with the Israelites. Well, through apathy becomes apostasy. And when you reject what you once believed and you start living in your sin, you're not getting the results that you wanted lustfully in your flesh. Eventually, if the three, it leads to anarchy. And so that's what this eventually will, will, will transpire with a post-Christian era, is when you abandon God, the consequences of your sin start setting in. And when the apostasy gets out of control, anarchy eventually will ensue. And that's kind of what we see on the news even this morning. I hope you enjoyed the first part of our interview with Jason Jimenez of ReShift Ministries. Tune in next week for the second half of that interview. As he talked about today, we have entered this post-Christian era in America as a nation, and that's resulted in countless people feeling completely detached from God and actually trying to find satisfaction in all different areas that maybe previous generations weren't willing to go to, but this generation has come up empty-handed nonetheless. The reality is that only Jesus can answer the questions that you're asking, and only Jesus can provide you with true hope and true joy, with true meaning, and ultimately only Jesus can forgive you 
for your sins. See, the Bible says that God loves you, but you're separated from God and the relationship he created you for because of your sin and selfishness. We're all sinful. We all fail to measure up to God's standard. I mean, we fail to measure up to our own standards. That's really bad news, though, because separated from God, the Bible says, I have nothing to look forward to except a life of futility here on this earth and an eternity separated from him in what the Bible calls hell. Fortunately, the Bible tells me that God became a man, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, who lived a perfect life that I could never live, and he died the death that I deserved to die, paying the penalty for my sins so that if I would put my faith and my trust in him, I could be forgiven. The Bible says if you're willing to come to that point today to say, Jesus, I need you, and realizing that you need to put your faith and trust in him and that he alone can rescue you, you can do that right now, putting your faith in him through prayer, saying, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me new life. Please come into my life. Please be my Savior and Lord. I hope that you took that step to put your faith in Christ this morning if you haven't already. A great next step would be to visit a local church today. Go to GodSolutionShow.com, again, GodSolutionShow.com, and see a list of local churches and the times and the places that they meet. Well, like I always say as I close out the show, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening to The God Solution. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon. Oh,